This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back for a second series of Gosh Pods Goes Green. In this series, we are focusing on the important issue of air pollution. Over the next eight weeks, we will explore the impact of air quality on our health, factors contributing to air pollution, and start to think about what we can do as individuals and as healthcare professionals to improve our air quality and advocate for change. In this week's episode, we're turning our attention back to Great Ormond Street. I'm joined today by two members of staff, Magalie Thompson, who's the project lead for placemaking and part of GOSH's sustainability team, and Vincent Lee, a computer-assisted design manager, who's also one of GOSH's green champions. They're going to be talking to me about how we can make changes to the environment and public realms within GOSH to ultimately improve our air quality. Hello to both of you. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Firstly, could you both tell me a little bit about your role at Great Ormond Street? Hi, Emma. Really nice to be here speaking to you. So I'm an architect working in space and place. And I guess the opportunity for my role first arose due to the new Children's Cancer Centre, which is planned for Great Ormond Street, because we're creating a new building, which will give a new frontage to the street. We thought it also provides an opportunity to address the street itself and our relationship to the street and enhance the setting of the new building. So part of the role includes looking at our street and also the communities surrounding Gosh, essentially everything outside of our buildings. And I think as Gosh has grown with the Sight and Sound Centre and the ZCR, it shows how we're becoming more of a campus, if you like. So the journeys between our various buildings become more important in relation to wayfinding, health, accessibility, and just as an experience, really. So, yeah, that's kind of the background as to as to how my role arose. Okay, fantastic. And can I just ask, so your background is as an architect, and so obviously that kind of plays into a lot of what you do. What was it that made you want to kind of direct your work as an architect into the kind of realm of sustainability? What was it that kind of prompted that decision and that choice of career pathway for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I worked in the private sector for over 20 years. I really enjoyed working on schools in particular, so buildings for children, which obviously has a link with gosh. But I found I was getting more interested in the spaces in between buildings as opposed to the buildings themselves. And also I did a master's in cities at the LSC and it was all about cities and the way our health is impacted by our environment and how important essentially spaces in between buildings are. So when when this role came up at GOSH, it, it ticked a lot of boxes for me. And yeah, I find it really interesting looking at, at the relationship between space and health. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And then moving on to you, Vincent, so you have a, a slightly different role to Magali and a slightly different line of work, but could you just tell us a little bit about what you do and why you decided to become one of the green champions at GOSH? Yeah, um, so my background is in basically technical drawing, so that moved from being pens and compasses and a drawing board into using computers. So I've always been doing technical drawings of, of some sort. So, you know, I've, I've been a gosh since the inception of the redevelopment, originally known as GOS 2000. 
And since that time, there's been a, a core group of individuals at Great Ormond Street that wanted to look at sustainability. So very early on, you know, that's one of the things that sort of ticked my boxes, really. We'd been interested in what we call green matter, sustainability matters. So, you know, very early on, we started to look at things that we could tackle within the trust that would help feed the greater plans somewhere down the line. Now, those bigger plans came into being more when Magli's role and her team were created. So, you know, that, that gave us more of a formal setting for the Green Champions group. So we kind of went from doing small things within the office to larger things that, that encompass the trust. And certainly with, with CTC on the horizon, it, you know, it gives us better opportunities to try and tackle things straight away and things that have a, have a greater impact. Yeah. So your teams working together can accomplish bigger, wider reaching projects. I guess on that note, could you tell me about one of the projects you've been working on that's been looking at how we can improve our air quality around GOSH? So in terms of projects I've been working on, the main thing I'm working on is a long-term vision for improving the public realm on Great Ormond Street. That needs to happen after the CCC is built. So we're talking six years ahead. And I think it's really important to have short-term projects as well, because it's, that's so far away that it's hard to kind of envisage, if you like. An example of two of the shorter-term projects I've worked on are the Parklet and the Play Street. So the parklets, some of you may have seen, it takes up the space that's normally taken up by a parked car, and it therefore shows what can be provided as an alternative. So it's quite symbolic in that sense. And it's, it's possible to experience at a smaller scale some of the things that we'd like to see in terms of our long-term vision for the street. So there's, you know, seating there and greenery. We worked in partnership with Camden Council to create the parklet. It's constructed from trees that have fallen in London largely from storm units. So it's a sustainable use of the timber there. And the plants have been chosen due to their air filtering qualities. One of the challenges on our street is that we go over the World Health Organization limits for both NO2 and PM 2.5 almost daily. So improving the air quality on the street underpins really all the projects we're working on. And the second project, again, hopefully uh, many of you may have attended it's, it's a play street, I think we've carried out three or four now. And essentially we temporarily close the street to traffic for the day and it becomes a child-focused space for play, music and entertainment. The last one we had, I think, had a falcon and accessible bicycles for children to try out sensory spaces and magicians. And it means children who sometimes haven't left their rooms in months are able to come out and play. But importantly, it's a community event. It's also open to, to children at local schools and our neighbours. So both the Parklet and the Play Street are temporary projects, but I think they have the potential to illustrate a different future for our streets. And they're also good for testing out ideas in an economical and speedy way and seeing, you know, what things might work and what things don't. Yeah, and I guess it's showing what can be achieved if we do reduce the amount of cars on our streets. So saying, look, where we're parking these cars, we have room to create slightly nicer environments and reduce air pollution and create, you know, a nice space for people to hang out or to relax. And that's the same for the play street as well. It's just showing some of the benefits of having fewer cars on our road, aside from the reduction in air pollution, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much space allocated in London to car parking. There are studies which have quantified it 
and I think it's equal to one whole borough or something like that. But we don't really question it. And I think, yeah, these small parklet projects, for example, make us begin to think really about those kind of allocations and how the space could be used differently. Yes, it showed what you can do on a closed road. With the parklets, again, as Magali said, they're designed to take up the space of a single parked car. So, you know, we haven't got a great excuse for not putting these in streets throughout central London where the air quality is particularly bad. Other things that we could do in the space of a parked car is to provide on-road cycle parking. I've cycled into Great Ormond Street since I've been here for that's, that's nearly 25 years. And the amount of cycle parking around the site is quite limited. But if you put one of these things on the road, it looks like the outline of a car. So, you know, it's taking up the side of a car, but you can get eight bicycles to park in there. So those sorts of things are, are great. Magali very kindly, he lets us know if there are any local consultations going around Great Ormond Street. One of those was the St. Giles streetscaping. So over the weekend, there was an event called Free Cycle. So it's where they close off London roads. And part of that went around the St. Giles streetscaping. And it looks fantastic down there. I wasn't able to have a good look at it, but, you know, they pedestrianized some of it. They've got bollards. It's cycle friendly. There's plenty of seating. Their alliums are way better than what I can grow at home. So, you know, and they really do improve local streets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in central London when they had the free cycle event and, you know, it does transform those roads when they're close to cars and you have bikes going along them and it get more kind of people out and about. It, it gives it a completely different feel and I think really shows how nice things could be if there were fewer cars on our road. I guess, though, that we do still need cars and transport to some extent, particularly at a hospital, we need to have access to cars. And so that poses some challenges, I guess. How do we balance that, the kind of need to still have cars whilst also trying to make the streets as open and pedestrianised as possible? Yeah, no, you're right. It is a challenge and a balance is required. We're working on a long-term vision now to improve the street with LDA Design, who are landscape architects who've done local projects like Alfred Place. Some people may know about all the Old Witch now, which has been pedestrianised down at the Strand. Initially, we were looking at pedestrianising the central part of Great Ormond Street. But like you say, we've realised we can't do that. We do need access for ambulances and for parents dropping off. So essentially, we're now looking at a scheme which makes the street one way, which suddenly means you have a lot more pavement where you can introduce a lot more greenery, seating, playful elements and create a, a better place for people. And we're also looking at potentially putting in a modal filter, which is essentially a camera which will allow vehicles where we can agree which vehicles should be allowed along the street and it should stop the amount of through traffic that comes down the road. So these are the kind of measures we can take. Alongside that, I also think we need to make arriving by public transport for those people who can, obviously, easier and better because it's no good if the alternatives aren't great either. So I think we need to work on, um, I don't know, these are just ideas here, but we could have shuttles from St Pancras down to the hospital. We're certainly going to look at better wayfinding from Russell Square Tube to the entrance of Great Ormond Street because I think a lot of people struggle with that first time round. Just making the arrival experience easier but when you're not in a car, will hopefully mean, you know, there might be some changes of behaviour as well. But it is a challenge for sure. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, I think, just about making the experience of arriving by public transport as easy and as pleasant as possible. And I know, Magali, that actually you've taken an interest in the past at looking at the children's perspective of this journey. Is that right? One of my interests has always been in terms of how children experience space. And there, there's a program called Urban 95, which looks at how children 95 centimetres tall, which is the average height of a three-year-old, experience space. And I actually strapped a camera to my son at that height above the ground and we recorded his journey from Russell Square Tube to Great Ormond Street with my husband, uh, his dad. And they didn't know the way. And I said to my husband, don't look it up on your phone. I just want to see whether you find it or not. And it just records the journey from that height. And it's just quite a revelation, really. All he can see is the back of people's bags and their coats and the sort of front and backs of cars and exhausts. Very grey. There's no stimulation along any of the journey. They go wrong. They don't go. They first go to ZCR and then turn back on themselves. And I just think that it was a, it was a little experiment, but I just think it's really important to think about space and, and put yourself in other people's shoes and understand different people's lived experience. And certainly, children, I don't think, are considered enough. Actually, statistically, 25% of the London population is under 18. So it's, it's, it's a big group and it's their future we're talking about. So yeah, I'm always interested to look at children's perspective. Yeah, that takes me back actually to something that was said in the first episode of the series that was just about thinking that children, you know, they're at the level of exhaust pipes and for that reason are probably affected even more than adults. So yeah, I guess it does highlight the importance of actually considering the child's perspective in all of this. What are the outcomes that you're hoping for with this long-term vision for the street? So we've been monitoring the street as it is now and we know, well, like I mentioned, that pollution is an issue and that children are obviously particularly vulnerable to this. There is also noise and congestion and not much planting. So the outcomes we're hoping for are to transform, you know, a polluted and traffic-dominated street into a climate resilient and healthy and child-friendly one. We coined the term a healthy hospital street for this, which is a concept which could actually be replicated further. I do think it's ironic really that there are so many hospitals in London and the streets immediately outside them are actually so unhealthy and so sort of congested. And it's a contradiction a little bit. And I think when, when Matt Shaw, I think quoting him, he said, it's no longer enough to treat the child. We also need to treat the environment they're in. So I think there's so much potential in terms of expanding green spaces in cities to withstand the effects of climate change. So we want to put in porous surfaces instead of impermeable ones, which they call sponge cities. So cities just become more absorbent to water and introduce plant and trees, places to sit, and essentially change the balance or the focus. So you can still access by car, but it's about children and people first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it reminds me of so many sustainability projects that I've heard of that have been undertaken at GOSH, where the primary aim might be to think about improving sustainability or improving air quality, but actually there's so many other benefits as well. So in this case, you know, as you've mentioned, the noise reduction and just making the street a nicer place to be for our patients and families and also for staff. Yeah, I think the co-benefits are key and also worth adding that, uh, yeah, hopefully it would be a better place for all those people 
also for our neighbors and, and community around us who don't particularly enjoy the congestion either and also have issues in relation to noise and everything else. And the nice thing about the street is, is that it provides sort of social cohesion and, and spaces for people to meet and sit and relax, which should be fantastic. So what are the next steps and challenges with respect to seeing Healthy Hospital Street realised? So we have LDA Design producing a concept design, which they'll have ready early July. And then we're in talks with Camden Council in terms of next steps, because we need to partner with them in relation to taking this forward in that we don't own the street. It's, a, you know, it belongs to the highways and the project will need fundraising for so we need to look at a strategy for doing that. But what's good is that Camden Council are very supportive of all the work we've done to date. They're doing a bigger project called the Holborn Livable Neighbourhood Scheme. And they've said that this could form part of it. So I think, yeah, there'll be a pause as we work out how to form a partnership with Camden and look at how to fund the project. And then hopefully we'll continue to move forward. We're sort of working one step at a time on this. Yeah, definitely. So it is a long-term goal that isn't going to be achieved overnight, but hopefully when it is finally achieved, it's going to be such an amazing thing. And thinking a bit more about improving the air quality in the streets around Gosh, do you think there's a role for electric vehicles within that? As you said previously, we, we do need cars. It would just be nice if they weren't spewing noxious gases out of the tailpipe. I think Electric cars do have a part to play in that. Again, it will be argued that from a sustainability point of view, they could be just as bad as petrol and diesel cars. But, you know, I think there are things that come in that will, you know, they'll, they'll start to have better battery chemistry. So, you know, they won't be made of so many rare earth materials. You'll be able to provide them a lot cheaper. The range will be greater. So, you know, the, the direct link for EVs within a, a city landscape is that the air will be better. It will be cleaner. Things will be a little bit quieter. So it tackles another kind of thing, but yeah, they're probably not the sanitier that we would like them to be, but if we're still going to continue driving, I think it's, it's a preferable way to go than to, to keep on hanging on to, to fossil fuels. And Vince, you mentioned earlier that you're a keen cyclist. And I believe you were one of the founders of Ride for Their Lives. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, I mean, a couple of years ago, the group that both myself and Magda are in, we, we came up with the idea for, for Ride for Their Lives. So initially, it was just a, a cycle ride to Glasgow, just to, to remind everyone about the COP26. But what, what actually happened is it, it grew into more than that. It grew into a, an air quality initiative. So that affects the children's hospital directly, you know, the health of our patients. Some of the children that are not yet our patients, but may well be if, if we continue along the, the lines that we're already going. So, you know, that sort of initiative was very helpful in trying to spread a bigger message. And, you know, with the participation of the, the WHO, so they joined us within that. We've joined with them. We're both using, you know, resources between ourselves to just try and promote that, that bigger air quality cloud that is hanging around us. And now moving to think about the future, and we've already talked about the possibility of healthy hospital street. Are there any other changes that you would like to see happen in your area of work in the future with regards to improving air quality or 
sustainability measures in general? As a member of Space and Place Directorate, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by construction and construction teams. So my team is, is responsible for refurbishing parts of the hospital. So either when we're doing something like knocking down the frontage building, so we're responsible for creating refurbished spaces. And you, you get to see within the, the construction industry, there is such a, a large amount of practices that are directly acting against what we're trying to do for sustainability. Concrete, steel, all of those things, they take such large inputs to create, you know, the materials that we're putting into a building. So from my point of view, you know, I'd, I'd like for us to be better at doing that. I, you know, I want us to be using better materials that don't have as much embodied carbon as some of the things we use now. I want us to see us using paints that will be absorbing VO2, zero volatile organic compounds. So that it just makes a healthier environment. And we should be reusing things as well. You know, we have skips out the back of the building. It's full of stuff and you, you know, you, you see things in there that with a bit of care, you know, you could be reusing a lot of that material. And that would also reduce the huge amount of waste that I think the NHS typically has a lot of, but also the construction industry has far too much going into a skip and to landfill than it should have. Yeah, I really understand what you're saying there. So my background is as an anaesthetist and anaesthetics is quite similar to construction in that a lot of what we do inherently is bad for the environment. And so I get that kind of feeling that in just coming to work and doing your job, you're kind of indirectly responsible for some of the problem. And it's how you continue to do your job, but do it in as environmentally friendly way as possible. So I can kind of really understand that attitude and that kind of feeling behind it. What do you think are some of the barriers to people going about their lives and their work more sustainably? What's stopping people doing it? Initially, for me, it feels like it's cost at nearly all stages of this. It's, it's too expensive to, to buy more sustainable products. It's too expensive to store and set aside possible material that you can reuse somewhere because it costs to create that storage, the research into sustainable products as well, that is added onto the, the bottom line price of lots of things. So you'll find that, you know, green concrete is, is doable and it's great, but it just costs, you know, two or three times more than what you're using at the time. And I, and I don't pretend to know the economics of it. For me, it's quite simple, you know, the cost is either in pounds sterling or it's cost to the planet. And, you know, I think one of those we can ignore, the other one, not so much. Yeah, I agree with Vince. I think it often relates to cost. Unfortunately, many, many of the sustainable materials or approaches cost a little more, even like demolishing a building can be done, you know, fast and cheaply or you can spend time actually dismantling and looking at everything really carefully to see whether it can be reused but that involves finding somewhere to take that to you know it's it's time consuming and unfortunately we're not we don't normally or always have the luxury to do those things I think in a way if as many of, of these sustainable approaches became legislation so we didn't have a choice anymore that that would certainly help because you need bigger picture thinking really in order to, to solve a lot of these issues. And we need to be committing to more st stringent environmental targets. I think if we want to, to, to go in the right direction.
it's really challenging for sure. What advice would you have for people listening to this who might be wanting to become a bit more involved with sustainability in their department or potentially even thinking about becoming a green champion? Yeah, I would just say, just try and educate as much as possible on some of the things that are concerning you. And then you just need to act accordingly. Like I say, you need to be doing as much as you can. And sometimes that will be a lot and sometimes it won't be so much, but you'd like to think that it does all add up and it does all make a difference. Yeah, I agree with Vince in terms of just keep on learning and listening and educating yourself. I think it's also good to hold others to account and challenge within our teams or within our structures, challenge those people who are in leadership positions to do more and also to look outside of our organization and work collaboratively with, with other NHS trusts or with Camden Council. A lot of the big changes we can't necessarily just make on our own, even though our individual actions are obviously important, but we need to be working at a bigger scale as well. And I think that might involve pestering people quite a lot, which has been partly my strategy in terms of Camden, that you have to just keep on at people, I think, and really push to, to see changes. Yeah, definitely. I think persistence is key, but in working in groups and in tandem with other organisations is essential really, isn't it? Well, thank you so very much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting chatting to both of you about your vision for, for Great Ormond Street in the future. And I know you said it's six years away, but I certainly can't wait to see it come to life. Thank you, Emma. It's been a really good chat. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods Goes Green. For the final two episodes of the series, we're going to be turning our attention back to Great Ormond Street Hospital, speaking to some staff members and talking about the projects that they've been working on to address the issue of air quality within our environment at GOSH and on behalf of our patient. So make sure you listen out for that episode coming next week. The team at the GOSH Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on GOSH Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.